Many of you know that on many a Sunday, I'm trying to find June. I don't know where she's at. I'm looking, trying to find her. This morning, Blake wanted to play Bobby, see if you can find the verse we're on this time. Yeah, so. Blake, I think you did that on purpose. It's all my fault. It's all your fault. All right. And so uh, if you've ever had to run the slides up in the audio sound booth, uh, it gets a little tough when uh, you get off kilter. You're like, okay, where did he just go? And so, uh, Bobby, we apologize for you. We know how difficult that is. All right. Uh, we just launched this year a year-long series called Journey Life. And it's going to be looking at lessons from Old Testament people of faith and asking the question, how did they live this life? And when they struggled, when they came to problems and difficulties, how did God intervene in a way that will help us stop and think about how he intervenes in our lives as well? And we begin this month with Abraham. And so we, be, we begin by looking at God's call on Abraham. And then last week on God's blessings of Abraham. And today we move into a third lesson that continues to cause us to look at how God worked at developing the faith of Abraham. And so I want to begin by simply going back and reminding you one of the promises found in Genesis chapter 12. And watch how this sets up for a problem that Abram and Sarai are struggling with. Okay? Here's one of the promises God made to Abram when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He said, I will make you into a great nation. There's the promise. Now, if you remember from chapter 11, you literally go back about 8 or 10 verses, the writers already told us that there's a problem, okay? I mean, you get a preview of the clash that's going to take place. Look at 11 verse 30. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. All right? Now, do you see the problem? She's not able to conceive, she's childless, which means Abraham or Abram is childless. But here's God saying, but Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And you're like, okay, I, I don't know how you're going to do that in light of this reality. And he keeps coming back to Abram and telling him that. Notice once he gets to Canaan's land, this is chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Abram traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then look what he says. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring. But Sarai can't conceive. Yeah. I mean, God, how are you going to fulfill this promise when this reality exists. And, and for Abram and Sarah, this becomes an incredible problem. Now, if you go on a couple of chapters later, you basically have Abram and Lot having to divide. Uh, Lot is Abram's nephew. Both of them are incredibly wealthy. Both of them have a, a lot of sheep and a lot of cattle, and they've had to separate their respective groups of people because the land simply wasn't large enough to contain them. And then all at once some kings come in. Four kings come in from the east 
and, and they come through the land. They're basically raiders, and they pick up Lot and his family and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're taking them off back toward Mesopotamia. And word comes to Abram, your, your, your nephew Lot has been taken. When Abram heard that, his relatives had been taken captive. He called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, if you'll just pause for a moment, you're like, he is wealthy. Yeah. He's got 318 adults born into his house who are able to go and fight. In other words, I don't know what you ever thought about Abram and Sarai and what it meant for them to live in tents, but we're not talking about two or three tents here. We're talking about hundreds. We're talking about an entire caravan of people. I mean, if you just take the number of men, add women, add children, you're talking about well over a thousand people that are in just Abram's clan. Now, none of them are kin to him. These are slaves he's acquired, servants he's, he's bought. These are people who've been born into his household. And, and he goes off, he attacks these four kings, he defeats them in battle, he rescues Lot, he comes back into Canaan, and then he thinks, what in the world have I just done? I, I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of the dog that chases the car. I've always wanted to know, what if you let him catch it? What does the dog do? I had a benevolent case many, many years ago of where a guy who had scammed the church, that happens sometimes, sadly, had come back to scam the church a second time. I had been involved in both scams. But when he came back the second time, I didn't remember him. I mean, I just didn't remember him. He's sitting there asking for money. I'm having to fill out paperwork. I said, I need a copy of your driver's license. I hate to have to do this, but people sometimes scam the church. And he said, really? They scam the church? And I said, yes. I hand him his driver's license back, look at it on the sheet of paper, and instantly recognize his name because I'd called the police about him. And I looked at the sheet of paper, and I said, and you're one of the low-down scammers who scammed us. And he said, oh, no, no, I would never do that. And I said, yeah, you did. I remember your name. I said, I tell you what, we're going to help you. I've got two deacons back here in the back. I'm going to get them, me, and we're going to ride with you to help you out in your broken down car. And I stepped out in the hall to holler for the deacons, and he took off running. I mean, out the, down the hall, through the doors, into the parking lot. Y'all want to guess what I did? I went after him. I mean, I'm running after him. I mean, I'm going to catch this guy, you know. And, of course, he jumps in his car, squalling tires, takes off. And I'm telling June about this later, and she said, can I ask you a kind of a dumb question? And I said, sure, what? She said, what would you have done if you caught him? I'm like, I, I didn't get that far ahead in the story. <laughs> Abram didn't get that far ahead in the story. He had just taken his men and fought against four kings. And of course, because of God, he defeated them. But afterwards, he's thinking, what have I done? And so God comes to him, very next text, and says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. 
You don't have to worry about these guys. They're not coming back. I am your very great reward. And when he says that, Abram finally thinks, okay, now's the time to to have a talk with God. And so he shoots back at God his frustration. And he looks at him and says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? You have given me no children. I mean, here's Abram. It's, it's, been, it's now been 10 years. God, when are you going to give me children? And God says, all right. And, and, and by the way, have you ever wondered what God is doing in your life? I mean, I do on a regular basis. I mean, I, I'm going down this, and all at once, this is not working anymore. And I'm like, okay, God, I'm not rightly sure where you want me to go or what you want me to do. And that's where Abram is. Abram's like, God, you, you, you called me, you, you, you promised me, and, and, and I've been waiting, and I just don't see you doing anything. And sometimes that gets incredibly confusing. And then the Lord, word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he says, Abraham, I want you to go outside and I want you to look up in the sky and I want you to see if you can count the stars. And he goes out and he looks up and God says, that's how numerous your descendants are going to be. And you think, wow. And the text says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited him to him as righteousness. One of the most powerful texts. You turn over the New Testament and Paul's going to grab this and say, just as Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith, so are we. It's our faith. As Mark so beautifully pointed out during communion, we're all sinners. We're all on the mountain of curses. I mean, we, we, we're not the people who are getting it all right. And so because of that, it's our faith that God looks at and says, that's what I'm looking for. And so finally you look in the text and you says, okay, Abram's finally gotten it. Okay? He's finally gotten there. He, he understands faith. He believes God. God accepts it as his righteousness. All right, now the story's going to go well. Ah, uh, not exactly. Sovereign Lord, but how can I know? In other words, God just said, go out and look. See it? Yeah. That's the way it's going to be. Okay, I'm going to believe it. But how can I know it? You know, sometimes we just, I don't know about you, but there are times that I've wanted to say, God, could you just give me some type of visible sign? Something. I remember as a kid being in bed at night and be thinking about God and say, God, if you're there, would you just let me know it 100%? And, and, and here's what I'd ask God. I'd say, could you just flip the lights on and off? I'm serious. I'm serious. If you never did that, God bless you. I did. And living in Mississippi where the power grid wasn't that great sometimes, that could have been a mistake. You know. I mean, but I would. I'd lay in there in bed. And I'd say, just give me a sign. Just flip the lights on and off real fast. And that's all I'll take. And, of course, if, if we're like everybody else, Gideon's a good example in the Old Testament. Once God did that, we'd want a little bit better one. But Abram says, how will I know? And God said, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go get a ram and a bull. I need you to get a sheep. I need you to get some birds. I need you to cut those in two, and I need you to lay those out. And Abram was very familiar. Now, this is kind of a picture of these animals cut up, blood's running down the middle. Abram's up on the hill looking at this, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? 
And, and, and what's going on here is that in the ancient world of Abram's day, you would literally cut a covenant. Now, most of our translations translate, make a covenant. But if you'll talk to Stan, Stan will tell you that the Hebrew word there is cut a covenant. Because what you do is you cut up these animals, you lay them out, half of them on one side, half on the other side, and then you make some promises. And then you seal the covenant. Notice what God says to him. He says, okay, let me just tell you how confident I am that you're going to have descendants. And he says, know for certain that for 400 years you're descendants. What's he doing? He's going into the future. And he's saying, listen, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. We know that from the rest of the book of Genesis. And there they're going to serve the Egyptians. They're going to enslave them. You see that in the first part of Exodus. And then I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to punish. I'm going to punish the Egyptians because of what they have done to your descendants. In other words, God said, can I give you a preview literally hundreds of years into the future? Will that help? And then all at once a fire pot appears. Fire pot. Fire pots were literally how you carried coals around in ancient times. Yeah, again, we are so used to today with having heat in our houses. We don't build fires much anymore. And we sure don't carry around coals to build fires as we move from this location to the next location. But they did back then. They had to carry their fires. And so they would fill a pot full of hot coals. And then when they got to the next site, they would light another fire and they'd keep their family warm. This fire pot appears. And it's floating. And it floats right between the animals. Just the fire pot. And of course, we look at it and we think, that's the strangest, weirdest thing in the world to happen. But notice what the next verse says. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He made a covenant. And what's amazing about this covenant is God's the only one that went through the animals. Abram didn't. It was God. God saying, I'm entering into a promise with you that is absolute, 100%. You can't mess it up. I mean, it's like you're getting married. And the preacher turns to you and says, do you take this woman for better, for worse, for richer, for poor? All the things that you promised, cleaning the house, mowing the yard, taking out the trash. And then he goes, all right, I pronounce you husband and wife. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. What about her promises? She don't have to make any pretty sure that's what the preacher did to me when I got married. But anyway, that's beside the point. It's a one-sided covenant. But it's a one-sided covenant you can trust. And so you go, well, it appears Abram has finally, finally now gotten it. No. I love this out of the voice. This is the very next text after the covenant. Despite God's promises, years went by. Still Abram's wife Sarah remained childless. But she did have an an Egyptian servant girl whose name was Hagar. So Sarah had an idea, so she approached her husband. Like I said, you're now over ten years into them being in Canaan's land. God's made promise after promise after promise after promise. And finally, even after making this covenant, Sarah's sitting there and going, okay, okay. God needs our help. This is not working. And so she comes up with an idea. And let me just tell you, when it says, Sarah had an idea, so she approached, I hate it when June says that. June will say, hey, I got an idea I want to share with you. I go, oh, no, not another one. You know? 
that, that usually involves me, you know. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And so she approaches Abram and says to him, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Her slave's name here is Hagar. She's an Egyptian girl that they had acquired while they were down in Egypt. And in the ancient world, children were everything. They were your future. They were your social security. They were everything. And so in the ancient world, if you couldn't have children, you could get a surrogate who would have a child for you. Now, they didn't do it the way we do it today. I mean, Abram had to take Hagar as a second wife and sleep with her in order for this to happen. But the child born to Hagar were supposed to have been considered Sarai's child. But, you know, that doesn't always work that way. And so you look at this and you think, man, aren't you glad Father Abraham was a righteous, godly, good man who would never do something like this? (laughs) Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah's wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Problem solved. Heirs here, God's promises have been fulfilled and everything is now back on track. Yeah, right. I mean, you see, sometimes... When we think everything's on the track for us, God looks at us and goes, no, that's not what I promised. And I want you to look immediately what happened. When she knew she was pregnant, Hagar began to despise her her mistress, Sarai. In other words, Hagar, who is now kind of a second-class wife, gets pregnant and says, Now Abram's going to love me more than Sarai because I got pregnant. I'm going to give him a child. Now I don't have to listen to her anymore. And she starts basically despising Sarai. And and guess what Sarai does? She then looks at Abraham. You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Don't you love that one? I mean, Abram's like, me? It wasn't my idea. Yes, but you agreed to it. Well, yes, you know, I mean, you just, I would have loved to have seen this conversation. I put my slave in your arms. Notice the language there. I put my slave. I didn't put a woman. I didn't put a, a, a young lady. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me, and then what does Sarah do? Sarah calls down, may God, may the Lord judge between you and me. Still reminded of that advertisement of where, you know, the couple gets in an argument and, and one of them throws out the red flag. Y'all know that from football? And then they come in with a, with a replay and they watch the replay and they're like, ah, you know. That's what I think is going on here. I mean, poor old Sarah has been thrown down the red flag and Abram's like, really? Do we want to go and watch this again? Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar. I mean, you read that and you're like, she did what? I mean, the woman who, it was her idea, Hagar had never done anything to her up until this point in time. Yes, when she got pregnant, she, she, she didn't have the best attitude toward her. 
But I mean, now Sarai is mistreating Hagar. As if you mistreated me, you, you look down on me, I'm going to now mistreat you. And so Hagar flees from, from Sarai. The text goes into what happens after that. And, 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 and listen, it was a mess. It was just an entire mess. But you have to stop for a moment and go, okay, so, so what's going on here? And if you go back in the text, what did Abram do when he first entered Canaan's land? He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. But let me ask you this question. What did Abram not do when Sarah approached him with her idea? He did not call on the name of the Lord. In other words, he didn't stop for one second when, when Sarah says, go sleep with Hagar, this pretty young Egyptian slave of mine. Go sleep and maybe I can have a child through her. And Abram didn't say, well, let me pray about this. He didn't do that at all. He simply said, okay. And it went downhill from there. Can I ask you a question? When have you not sought God's guidance? When I look at all the major decisions we have to make in life, how many times do we make them and not even ask God? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're teenagers. We're thinking about where we're going to go to college and what kind of job we're going to do. I mean, do we stop for a moment and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Where do, want, where do you want me to serve you? Do we, do we stop and even ask that question? Or, or when we begin to start dating and we think, well, you know what, I'd love to find someone I can marry one day. Do we stop for one second and ask God, God, will you guide me to the right person? Do we even, does that even enter our mind? I mean, when we make our list of what we're looking for in a spouse, is God number one on the list? I remember after my brother was killed, I was 17 years old when he died in an airplane crash. And he had just graduated from college. He had just gotten married, been married six weeks. He had just started a brand new job. He was a youth minister at a church in Somerville, Tennessee. And... And so all at once we're devastated. And my sister-in-law gave us a sheet of paper that was in my brother's Bible. It was a sheet of paper having to do with two job offers that he had before they got married, before they moved, before he became a youth minister. Had two job offers from two different places. And he had listed, here's the strengths of these and here's the strengths of these. And number one on the church he chose or the work that he chose was, I can serve as a youth minister in the church. Wow. You're talking about bringing comfort to us. Because we knew that he was looking to the Lord to guide him. I can't answer a lot of other questions. He died six weeks later. But I know that that gave us a lot of comfort. Have you sought God's guidance? If not, maybe it's time to stop. And I've taken the word stop because I want, I want to just be very specific with four, four suggestions for how you not make the same mistake Abram and Sarah made. I mean, a mistake that affected them the rest of their life. I mean, it's one of those mistakes that you're like, really? And so how do we stop when we're not sure what God is doing 
and, 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 and try to say, okay, God, I don't know what's going on here, but I need your help. How do we stop? S, first of all, is seek God's will. Right off the bat, call on the name of the Lord. Now, there's a couple of ways to do that. Number one is, just need to open your Bible. I mean, sometimes the best way to look for what God wants us to do is just open up the Bible. For instance, when it comes to who you pick to marry, open up the Bible. I mean, you look for those characteristics. You turn over to the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs says, listen, can I tell you something? A woman who fears the Lord. Beauty, beauty is, is, is fat, vastly, quickly gone. Charm is deceptive. But the woman who fears the Lord, the man who fears the Lord, that's what you look for. Just, just open the Bible. So many times the answers are simply there. Number two, and then pray. Seek, call upon the name of the Lord. Number two, uh, let me go back. I want you to remind what James says in his little epistle, half-brother of Jesus, you do not have because you do not ask God. I mean, I wonder how many times we're going to get in eternity and we're going to say, God, I don't, I don't know why in the world you didn't bless me with this over here. And God said, did you ever ask me for that? Uh, well, no. If you don't ask, you don't receive. Number two, talk. Talk to trusted spiritual advisors. Now let me say something here. Number two, trusted. Trusted spiritual advisors. If you've got to make a decision, find people that you trust and bounce the ideas off of them. Now let me say, it's got to be that you trust. I remember a young man came to me one time and he says, Les, I've got this job opportunity. Here's what it is. What do you think about it? And I said, don't do it. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You don't need to do that. And he says, well, but I think it'll turn out great. I really, really do. And I said, well, have you talked to anybody else? Well, yeah, I talked to brother so-and-so about it. What did he say? He said not to do it. I said, so brother so-and-so said don't do it, and I said don't do it. So what are you going to do? Y'all want to guess what he did? He did it. And anybody want to guess what happened a year later? Exactly what both of us told him would happen. I mean, we said, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. And it's exactly what happened. And, of course, ended up leaving the job. I mean, if you don't trust someone, don't ask someone simply to say, oh, you're on my side. Listen to them. The way a fool seems right to them, but the wise, listen. They listen to advice. Number three, what about open doors? Do you see any? It's amazing how God opens doors. I mean, I just, I love seeing that. Uh, June and I, our youngest son, is, is a banker up in Toledo, Ohio. And, and several years ago, he had gone to Austin, Texas for a job down there, and it was a job that just blew up on him. I mean, literally blew up on him. And, and he was working for an individual that wasn't honest and, and wasn't a good person. And, and I remember him calling me, and he's like, Dad, I don't know what to do. And June and I said to him, get out of there turn in your resignation in the morning, pack up, you get back to, to Nashville. And that's exactly what he did. It, it had been a, a, a awful. He thought it was good looking at it, but it had been an awful decision. And he came back, and he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's about to get married. He needed a job. And then all at once, we're at Home Depot down in Rivergate, and I see an old friend of mine, and we got to talking, and I said, you don't know anybody that's hiring, do you? Uh, Kyle here is looking for a job. And he said, yeah, I'm fixing to hire somebody. I'm like, you're fixing to hire somebody? He said, yeah. 
He said, come in, talk to me. I mean, come in Monday, talk. And the next thing I know, our son was working at a bank, and he's still in banking all these years later. Sometimes when one door closes, God opens another one up. Look for open doors. Paul said, pray for us too, that God may open a door. God is a God who opens doors. Let's let him do it. And then finally, number four. And then you've got to patiently wait. You've got to wait. And Abram's like, boy, but I'm tired of waiting. God says, you should have waited a little longer. You need to learn to patiently wait. A part of what faith is all about. And so, simply one question. And by the way, Hebrews 6.15, commenting on Abram. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. He finally got it. But he had to wait. And so what do you need to stop? What do you need to stop and think about before making a decision? I hope that maybe some practical suggestions here have helped this morning. If I can be of assistance, we've got elders around who also can help. Uh, Come and let us know how we can help. You can do that right now if you want to. As together we stand and sing.